Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM 90 and is recorded at AC's Washington Street campus. This episode contains adult themes. Discretion is advised. I love the ridiculous things people say, especially Willy Wonka. That's, that's why he's my favorite character, is he says these most ridiculous things with great authority, and so they make sense, <laughs> which is what I strive to do every day. <laughs> Don't we all? You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Hillary Holsey, and today we are going to be talking about Roald Dahl. And the episode is titled The Dahl People. And The Dahl People, hopefully, is our panel, and I would like to have them introduce themselves, starting to with you. I'm Sadie Newsom. Um, I'm the Digital Communications Coordinator here at Emerald College. I'm Jill Gibson. I'm the chair of the Matney Mass Media Program at Amarillo College, and I am the co-coordinator of the Honors and Scholars Program. I am Melody Boren, and I am the Youth Services Coordinator for Amarillo Public Library. Okay, so you guys are kind of an odd mix of people, uh, but I chose you intentionally for different reasons. Um... Partially because some of you just expressed that you love Roald Dahl, and uh, others because you're an expert in, in children's, I would say, um, books. But I really, I ch- we chose Roald Dahl uh, because his name came up a lot last year when we talked about children's books, things that they remember, nostalgic memories of reading, what got them into reading. But he's also a very interesting character himself. So why don't we start off with talking about the easy question. What is your favorite Roald Dahl book? Do you want to go first, Sadie? Um, sure. So I'm sure that we will get into this, but Roald Dahl wrote a pretty impressive number of adult stories in addition to his children's books. It's kind of a little known fact for a lot of people, so I'm going to give one of each. Oh, wow. Okay. Go ahead. My favorite children's book by Roald Dahl is probably The Witches. I think that it's super cute, but also dark and funny and um, kind of has like a, a, a good moral to the story, but it's still realistic. I mean, it's not realistic. It's about a witches. bunch of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's about witches. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, it's not one that is completely sunshine and roses. Um, it's realistic in, in the moral of the story, I guess. And for the uh, the adult side of things, I think The Landlady. Really? Why? I just read it recently, and it's just super creepy and weird and intriguing and super short. I mean, you read it in, you know, just a few minutes. It's only a few paragraphs, but it's just, it'll give you chills. Hmm. Now I'm intrigued. I've never read any of his adult books. I have not either, but I ever, ever since we discovered this, it is now on my reading list. So what about you, Jill? What's your favorite? Well, my absolute favorite book is Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, and that is a book that is not very popular. In fact, if you look it up online, you see lots of people talking about how boring it is and how it's not at all like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and there's no chocolate in it, and it's very, very sad that he lost his edge. Well, I like that one better. So maybe that speaks to the fact that I like to go against everyone else. Uh, 
I've read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which, of course, is probably his most famous book. Um, Some of his later books are very famous. Maybe BFG and Matilda are just as famous. But because I was older when those books came out, I didn't read them at that time. And there's part of me that had a little, this is going to sound awful, but a little contempt for those books because they were more childlike and happy and less creepy. And Great Glass Elevator has a lot of creepy horribleness that appealed to me (laughs) as a child. Well, my favorite book is Matilda because I feel such an identification with Matilda. I was not raised by monsters as Matilda (laughs) is. It's a relief. Um, But loving books and, and being pretty solitary I could could relate to that. I'm the youngest of of several kids, and there's a big age difference between me and the rest of them. And uh, my parents were kind of done with the room mother and and all that stuff. And we didn't camp like they did, and all that stuff. So I I was a reader. I was Matilda, and the fact that there are so many horrible people in the world at at large, but in Matilda's world particularly. <laughs> And the fact that she has the, the gumption and, and still has a moral compass, even after being raised by monsters. Yeah. It, I love that book. I, I think Matilda's my favorite as well. I, I reread it looking toward today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and it's weird, we just recorded another podcast with um, Melody and Jill. And the way you guys were talking about your love of books and the fact that Jill would check out 15 books at a time, I mean, that is who Matilda was. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, she's just really, if you love reading, she's really smart at a really young age and she makes the most out of it and escapes into books. And I think that's why I like it too. Yeah. Um, Plus, I mean, in terms of adaptations, which a lot of Roald Dahl's books have been adapted into movies, that one is my favorite as well. I think it's the best. And I think that's because of Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. (laughs) Um, I want to say he he was he was responsible for that movie being made. Maybe he was the producer or something. And so, you know, I just it was so true to the book in a lot of ways. So the trudgeful. I read that Danny DeVito um, actually had a really close relationship with. Remind me, what's her name? The woman who plays Matilda. Oh, um, Mara. Mara. Wilson, is that correct? I think so. Mm-hmm. She has a Twitter account now, and she's like, she's like open about it. She's like, yes, I played Matilda, but I'm also this person. So I don't know. She was in uh, Mrs. Doubtfire yes. as well. So yeah, she's all grown up now. She is all grown up now, and she's a writer. Mm-hmm. I think is what she does. So I follow her Twitter account. Yep. Um, Mara's mother died, um, and Danny DeVito kept well, it was kind of a, a father figure to her. Oh, okay. After that, yeah. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about his style? Because I think you could say that for children's books, 
he does have a lot of horrible characters and kind of macabre sense of humor mm-hmm. in, in a way. That's what, the best part. Yeah. What do you Definitely. like about that? What What do you have to say about his style of writing and why it, why it appeals to you? Well, I love that he is not afraid of throwing out the hook. Um, when I was rereading James and the Giant Peach before we did this, the very first page is like so out of this world. The, the, the like second paragraph says that James's father and mother went to London to do some shopping and they both got eaten up in full daylight on a crowded street by an enormous angry rhinoceros which had escaped the London Zoo. What? <laughs> like, obviously I'm going to keep reading that. that. That's insane. And that's not super common for a children's book. He's not afraid of touching on the darkness that, I mean, people experience, children experience. I mean, that there's tons of, of instances in his books that a child is having to deal with a super traumatic and terrible event. And he makes it fun and manageable, I guess. And um, I don't know, it pairs the the darkness and the kind of gruesome stuff with silly words and ridiculousness. Yeah. Yes. Things that I don't think a kid would really lie in bed awake worrying about rhinoceroses eating their parents. Right. And so there's enough surrealism and bizarreness in his worldview that you don't expect these things to happen, but on some level you've met these people. They may not be the monstrous types that appear in the book, but you see those glimpses in them. I like the the fun he has with words, creating his own new words, especially in the BFG, the giant's self-made language. I really enjoy that. I enjoy the dark sense of humor. I think that comes from his childhood, and the bad characters are really bad, and the good characters triumph in, you know, he went to English boarding schools and things were not great. Um, the upperclassmen were allowed to beat the, the younger kids and the headmasters did as well. So that's where a lot of that, and he just, he saw a lot of the, the injustice and wondered why nobody did anything and he's doing something about it. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk a little bit more about his history? What do you guys know of Roald Dahl? Why do you think this comes into play in his books? I mean, you mentioned, I mean, already from what you said, you definitely know why Trenchbull exists in Matilda. I just read the Twits, mm-hmm. which they're like the ugliest, nastiest people mm-hmm. who don't bathe, who don't, like, they're just, but they're, what he really emphasizes is that they're ugly inside. Like, the that the way they treat each other is really terrible. Mm-hmm. So that is a common theme. So what do you know of him? I know more about his later life, which I've got got some interesting stuff on his later life. Um, I don't know a lot about his childhood. It sounds like that influenced his writing quite a bit. Why don't you touch okay. on that? Okay. <laughs> his parents were both Norwegian immigrants. His father had left Norway to make a life for himself first stopping in Paris, and then he and his brother began this shipping company that involved coal, because that's how everything was powered then, and moved to Wales, and had a blended family because his first wife died, and Roald's mother was a Norwegian immigrant as well, and they had several children. Interestingly, his older sister Astri 
died of appendicitis when she was seven. And a few months later, his father died of basically grief. He went to bed, got pneumonia, and died. Wow. It's so so sad. It is very sad that he, he grieved himself to death. And so lots of changes in the family. He was sent to boarding school. He actually was beaten by one of the headmasters in his town, at the school in his town, and his mother marched down there and said, you're not going to treat my child that way. And the next year, he was sent to another school, where, of course, history repeated itself. But that that early loss of his sister and father, I think, colored, well, it definitely affected the rest of his life. He went to school. He went to work for a couple of oil companies um, after he graduated from university, and World War II came around, and he was a pilot and was shot down in Africa and burned very badly, had head and facial injuries, and the people who ran to his crash scene did not think they would find him alive, and they did. And so he had lots of, of medical treatment and trauma. Hospital, tra- <laughs> a lot of trauma, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, who knows? I d- you know, I don't see – I'm sure it had some effect on him, uh, physically, as far as I don't know, you know, the extent of brain trauma or anything like that. That's like conjecture. It had to have colored the rest of his life because when you're, you know, World War II was different because the enemy was clear. It was mm-hmm. very clear who the enemy was. And uh, the World War II ended. There's a book we have called The Irregulars, and mm-hmm. part of it is Roald Dahl. I start to know a little bit more about okay. Roald Dahl. And he was. Uh, was it after the crash? Yeah. That, you know, well, it got into some espionage. Yeah, yeah. So, and so I'll turn it over to okay, Sadie. Okay, yeah. He, uh, after the crash, he got reassigned to the British Embassy in D.C. Um, and he did PR there, essentially. He gave lectures and, you know, wrote pieces and talked to people. And actually, his first published piece ever was about his plane crash. And apparently, it only took him five hours to write. This kind of launched him into children's stories. And his first children's story was The Gremlins. And people loved it. And it got him in some pretty big doors. He got enough notoriety to start meeting important people like Walt Disney and had a meeting at the White House with Eleanor Roosevelt. And they say around this time is when he was recruited by a covert British espionage network to spy on the United States. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, the original goal of the the spy ring was to uh, basically like plant pro-British anti-Nazi stories in the U.S. press. But then, you know, after Pearl Harbor, it was more to maintain that the U.S. stayed in the war and to combat the kind of isolationist perspective that the United States had, um, which a lot of people don't really even know that much about. We paint ourselves as gung-ho World War II go-getters, but that's not how it started. Um, And Dahl was super valuable in, in this whole endeavor because of all of his connections to these important people. Um, you know, people from mm-hmm. political leaders to the top publishers to journalists and like wealthy socialites. He came from a very privileged upbringing and was, I mean, in, in its own ways um, in terms of wealth. And so he had those connections too. And uh, he was a spy while he was writing some of the most renowned books. Really? 
Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's uh, how. Like, did do you think that comes into play? I mean, would, do you know the books that he was writing? No. Okay. Well, that's that's crazy. What an odd life. But I know. he is odd. His he writing, odd. his writing is odd. It mirrors that. Jill, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Um, I don't. I don't know a whole lot about his history, but I do think that's what has made him so popular. Is that his writing is odd? His his vocabulary is twisted, and yet, in many ways, as as we read read these books as adults. He's making very subtle commentary, some not so subtle. I mean, obviously, Matilda's not subtle at all. But there, there's some things about politics and corporations and authority that are snuck into his books in ways that children wouldn't realize, but their message is there just the same. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What do you think is the appeal of that entire book? And I guess he wrote multiple books on Charlie. Is that is there is there more than they're, two? They're just the two. He okay. started a third book and never finished it. And I guess he he did work for a company that made chocolates, which is where he got the idea. I was just reflecting and reading a little bit about some of the political correctness controversies about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because the Oompa Loompas are kind of polarizing creatures. Well, it is kind people... of like colonialism yeah. in, mm-hmm. in a, in a mm-hmm. way. Um, and the book actually goes to their, where they are from. Land. Yes, I forget what it's Oompa called. Oompa Loompa Land. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember the name of it, but you do see a little bit of their culture. And if you read it, you know, after having been enlightened in your life and not as a child, yes, it does have a little bit of that air to it so there certainly is um, some controversy about that and I do think that when people think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory they think about the movie uh, they, the movie was very well loved with Gene Wilder yeah so it's hard for people to separate the movie from the book well and I think the themes of his books are I, we talked about I, we've mentioned adaptation already but they're so nonsensical that they adapt well because, you know, movies can capture that in its own kind of nonsensical way. You have grandparents who sleep in the same bed together and are kind of useless. And then suddenly they can go to, he's healthy and can go to a Charlie, the chocolate factory with Charlie. I don't know. It's just, it's very odd and it it plays well on screen. You're going to a place that's magical and filled with chocolate, but then Willy Wonka's kind of demented in his own way. I mean, I don't know. I think it adapts well. I love the ridiculous things people say, especially Willy Wonka. That's that's why he's my favorite character, is he says these most ridiculous things with great authority, and so they make sense, <laughs> which is what I strive to do every day. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> I think that the the fact that, you know, there's this kid just living his life, kind of a sucky life 
really. <laughs> and then just right around the corner from where he lives, there's this insane, magical world of whimsy and insanity. And I think, like, as a kid, that's what appealed to me the most about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the whole story is that, you know, that just around any corner, if you open the right door, there could be this wild world that you didn't expect um I think that's part of why the movie's cool too um is it's kind of bleak at first and as a kid as a real young kid I remember I was kind of bored by the movie and I would fast forward cheer up Charlie (laughs) the song is the most boring part of that whole movie (laughs) yes I I do think it is it's meant to be bleak yeah because this is it's hidden within this industrious kind of yeah world that they're and there's a contrast in. yeah you're mm-hmm. supposed to feel that contrast as soon as you walk in the doors of the chocolate factory and it's just you know whimsical and wonderful and then you find out that there's actually some kind of dark um parts of that world too so jill you like the second book more than the first why is that and is willy wonka still a main character in this although i mean obviously charlie is but it's the same characters. It picks up right where Charlie and the Chocolate Factory end, and the elevator goes through the roof of the Chocolate Factory. And there really isn't a whole lot of plot to it. I'm not sure what it was about that book that appealed to me so much. And I, I think that it, most people who read it were disappointed because it's not the same and it's probably not as well written or cohesive, but there are just so, so many fun, weird things that are unexpected. Uh, he takes the opportunity to make fun of politics. He creates these marvelous monsters called vermicious canids, spelled K-N-I-D-S. So maybe uh, you would want to say nid, but I believe in the book, that it is made very clear that you pronounce the K. So vermicious canids just has a great sound to it. Mm-hmm. It does. And they're these strange, amorphous, blobby creatures that can morph into different shapes and spell words, which I thought was very, very fun. So it's that that strange, creative, silly world combined with making fun of grown-ups and authority and the way things work in a strange and twisted way that appealed to me and also perversely because it wasn't popular and there was no movie I think I liked it (laughs) you guys have talked a lot about how he kind of makes up his own words I mean I is that the appeal to kids why do these books appeal so much to kids is it just the ridiculousness I mean obviously you and I've gotten a different perspective in this last week just from I mean, we binged. We really have binged. We binged some rolled doll this week. Um, <laughs> I think it's a lot different reading them as an adult than as a kid, though. I think we're we're looking for underlying meanings and what he's trying to say. As a kid, you just read it. As a kid, you just accept the nonsense and you go with it because there really isn't anything you can do about it anyway. So you just go with the nonsense and the words are funny. Who knew? You can make up your own words. So... I'm going to do that. So I think it's that's part of the fun. I definitely think it's part of the fun. And I think it adds a sense of levity to the kind of heavy nature of some of the, the plot and some of his books. But, but at the same time, I, I do kind of disagree about the, the, the fact that kids don't pick up on some of the, the underlying themes. I mean, 
of course, they're not going to read this in the same way as I have in the last few days as an adult. But I remember reading The Witches as a kid and feeling that that feeling of like of underlying truth there, mm-hmm. you know, like there are some people in the world that are masquerading as this great person, but they're really hiding this hideous self behind this mask. And, you know, that's simple enough for a kid to understand and to help, uh, you know, kind of rationalize some of the yucky parts of the world around you, but still like fun enough to, and like you mentioned earlier, Jill, not close enough to home to like really hurt. But I do think that he does some cool things with making some universal truths understandable by kids. I think there there are themes that are accessible on multiple levels and, and just the idea of being able to survive in difficult circumstances, being able to achieve your dreams and triumph over adversity. I think that's accessible for kids. Uh, I was thinking of things like Great Glass Elevator makes fun of politicians, Mm -hmm. makes fun of the president. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is kind of making fun of the corporate world. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, in both of those, some commentary about aging and what we do with our old people in society. There are lots of different levels of commentary, and I'm not sure he even thought through it as he was writing it. It just kind of slipped out. But as a kid... I think what appealed to me was the unexpected, that you turn the corner and there is something you didn't expect to see and you never would have thought of. And you just go with that and it's normal. Bizarre things happen and that's okay. Like the, and I talked to you, Melody, because uh, in the previous podcast that we recorded, um, you should listen to that as well. We talk about children's mysteries. Um, you're talking about how it's a safe space for children to read books and to escape into. What about like moral messages? Somehow he always has a moral message in all of the ridiculousness. So what does that do for young readers? I think it reinforces the innate sense of justice that children usually possess on their own and it just proves them to be correct and that's another reason that these books I think are so popular is children have a sense of justice and fair play and it's you know it it's heartbreaking when a kid says that is not fair and they feel they're getting the short end of the stick and so kids have that sense of justice and morality anyway and it guides, it keeps things so much calmer than they would be otherwise. So I think that sense of morality that he instills in his characters carries the day for the kids and for their characters. Do you think a lot of it's inferred, though? I mean, like, when I think of Matilda, I don't know that Matilda is aware of the injustice in her life as much as we are. I mean, maybe she is, but... I I think she it's probably brought home more when she is uh, when she goes to school when she's finally able to go to school and she sees the difference and and she knows from her books that other people live different ways so maybe she probably doesn't even get to thinking 
why isn't my life that way? Until she gets to school and she mm-hmm. sees the trench bowl and Miss Honey, and they're so different. Who does she want to be? Miss what? Honey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's the greatest. <laughs> it, yes, that was that was a nice, nice resolution to that book. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that it's a common theme with Roald that his villains get their just desserts. Not mm-hmm. always, and not always in the way that you would expect, and not always all the way, but, you know, I was just thinking through, like, a list of you know, the, some of the books where that happens, and, you know, there's Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker, Miss Trunchbull, Augustus Gloop, Veruca Assault, Mr. and Mrs. Twit, all the witches of England. Bad things <laughs> happen to them. Bad things happen to they, them. They are irresponsible or greedy yeah. or corrupt. Yeah. And I have also found in some of the adult short stories that I've read from him, the the same thing happens. Not again, not always, and not always in the way definitely not in the way that you would expect in a lot of ways. But um there's one called William and Mary, um, and uh, it's a wild story. There's this uh, callous, controlling husband who tries to control his wife even after he dies in his will um, by, you know, giving her instructions as to the type of person she needs to be. And um, the tables are turned in an insane way, even after he's dead, which you're going to have to read it. But, um, yeah, yeah, the husband is dead, and she ends up being able to be the one that exerts some control over him, which is crazy. Um, Also, there's Lamb to the Slaughter. That one, that one's one that I had heard about, and I didn't realize that it was him that wrote it. But, you know, essentially, there's this philandering husband that ends up uh, um, being the lamb to the slaughter. I'm not going to give away the farm, <laughs> but it, the title does. <laughs> yeah. Someone is not alive. So why don't we talk about that? I mean, there have been authors who have written children's books and they've written adult books. For me, it's easier for me to see him making that transition easily because he already kind of has those harsher truths in Mm -hmm. his children's books. I think of like J.K. Rowling writing The Casual Vacancy after after having written Harry Potter and was not as well received. So why do you think he could make that transition? I don't know that they're the same audiences. I don't think most people even know or relate the two together. Uh, I'm looking at the back of one of these book copies of Matilda, and it says, read more from the world's number one storyteller. And then I'm thinking of these kids getting a hold of some of these adult books, and that's a little scary. Well, aren't yeah. there, 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 there is erotica, is that uh, true? Yeah. 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 He was well-rounded. He was well-rounded. <laughs> he uh, wrote, the, there's um, Uncle, what a, My Uncle Oswald. Um, and it's a whole bunch of stories about a man who is described as the greatest fornicator of all time. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't really want small children to read that. No. Okay. There's another, there's another one that I read that um, – so he published an entire collection of, I think, 10 short stories um, in issues of Playboy. 
Mm. And the first of which, I think, I think it was the first of which, um, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say this word on here, but I'm going to say it. Um, it's called bitch. Okay. Just called bitch. Okay. That's do, the title I, should of I, the book. How, how might I? You can say it. We, I mean, it is the title okay, it of is. the book. It was published in Playboy in 1974, and it's about this perfume um, that essentially sets back human evolution by half a million years where people are, you know, like <laughs> dragging, could drag one another by the hair to their cave to do what they wish with them. Um, <laughs> there is a seven foot tall male body part that makes an appearance. <laughs> well, it sounds um, a lot like the children's books, yeah, just a little bit It is. There's also different. a plot <laughs> To uh, uh, to overthrow the president of the United States, um, who I believe at the time it was written was Richard Nixon. Um, all this is all in the one in the one story, not in the Wait, collection of stories. This is all in one one story called Bitch. The collection is called Switch Bitch, of a few stories. Actually, I think that one's fewer. Anyway, but I I can see the parallels though. It's taking the same ideas that he has in the children's books and growing them up mm-hmm. well literally i mean growing them up. this is james and the giant peach you know now he has a different giant thing yep. that he's talking about <laughs> but I, he it's, size matters it, yeah I, I guess it does <laughs> <laughs> did you have something to add i was looking at his life um he was married to Patricia Neal. Yeah. I, I was just putting the time together. In the 70s, there was a lot of political stuff. Also, Playboy probably paid very well. Mm-hmm. And he, um, Patricia Neal had a stroke, a massive aneurysm in 1965, and had to learn how to talk and walk and and everything. And he was by her side, was in charge of her rehabilitation, and got her back to acting and so I'm thinking maybe it was financial. This or, is, or maybe he just wanted to, it, you know. It could have well, been that sold well, yes. Maybe both. I don't know. Everybody's yeah. got their, Why not both? Yeah. That is Patricia Neal of, like, Breakfast at Tiffany's and, like, you know, she's in other. I think she's She in was the, in HUD. HUD. Oh, yeah. Actress, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah, she's won os- an Oscar. Okay. At, at least one. And, uh, yeah, and he got her back to acting. Wow. That would make sense if yeah. it were financial. Yeah, it would. And I mean, it definitely didn't seem like he hated writing it. There's a lot of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then, you know, there's an entire, I don't know if it's a spinoff or I'm not sure what order they happened in, but there's an entire um, book called My Uncle Oswald. This, um, the, the bitch story that I was talking about is just... Uh, supposed to be a piece of the diary of his uncle Oswald. It does not seem like he didn't like writing these things. Well, and and I think that's one of the things that's appealing about the children's books as well is you can tell he's having fun mm-hmm. while he is doing it and he's creating crazy things that are fun to create. I I read this quote in an article about him just now. Uh, that says, in his books, madness and reality are almost the same. And that's why sometimes we should take risks and do whatever we want. And maybe that's what he was doing, is taking a risk with writing and writing what he thought, well, it might be fun to try and write something where I'm in a different world and some things are 
a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. I think this always happens when you're talking about one author specifically. There's so much speculation. You can't fully know, you know, why a person chose to do, unless they, you know, say it out loud, like I chose to do this for financial gain, or I actually liked it, or maybe it was a challenge for him. I don't know. Um, he didn't seem scared to try different things. No. Though. Nope. And yeah, that, that bravery to go out there on a limb and do things, his characters do that too. They go out on a limb and do things that are unexpected and challenge the yeah. world as we know it. You're not a fan of James and the Giant Peach, though. Well, I just I can't get into the Giant Peach. It's <laughs> gross. I don't like peaches. They're slimy. Uh, my children were in the play James and the Giant Peach, and so I had to I had to be exposed to the story over and over and over. And it's just I, I don't I don't like it. It's not that funny. It's a big peach. You know, there's a ladybug. Okay, who cares? Come on. It needs to be weirder, even though I know it's weird. It's a giant peach, but it's not weird enough for me. Oh, I think that the fact that the centipede wears so many boots and has this weird obsession with his boots and ends up in the end being a boot salesman or something along those lines is like one of the most ridiculous and hilarious things ever. <laughs> I don't know. It was I went completely past me. I did not find it funny. I think that there's a, you know, there's really not a ton of character development to the the non-main characters in a lot of his books. You know, he kind of got the lead and goes into the, the thoughts and feelings of the leader, maybe, the, too. There's a supporting cast. Uh-huh. But that is one thing that I thought was cute about James and the Giant Peach is that each one of the little um, insects has their own personality and their own quirks, and even the other um, of the group that they hate, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious, that there's, like, rivalries between them. Um, <laughs> he does do that a lot, where the main character isn't necessarily the one that is the most emphasized. He really plays on the cast of characters. I mean, you get that with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You remember more than just the main character, yeah, I think. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. a lot. Definitely. This is a quote from an article uh, he he wrote because he had been approached by a woman thinking she could write children's books and wanting to know a good publisher and illustrator and could he send her that information because that would be great and uh, in this article he talks about you know the fact that writing a children's book is just as challenging as writing an adult book if not more which more is so. why adult writers don't often tackle children's books and he writes that the prime function, therefore, of the children's book writer is to write a book that is so absorbing, exciting, funny, fast, and beautiful that the child will fall in love with it. And it worked. And it works. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the fact that not every child falls in love with every book is just fine. So um, the book will find its reader, hopefully. And the reader will find its find his or her book because that's my job and <laughs> it's pretty important to me <laughs> before we started recording i was saying that she's kind of the mrs phelps of of the matilda um book that helps matilda find the books and get the right books in her hands um, i think that's awesome that's a really cool job yeah it, it's wonderful i'm looking at the books you guys have brought and one of the things that 
I remember liking as a kid, and I still like as an adult, are the illustrations. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think they work really well with the weirdness of his stories. And that strange, almost, you don't have to. You, it doesn't have to be realistic. It doesn't have to be drawn well. They're grotesque yeah. to me. They're creepy. You know, but I can't think of a more perfect illustrator for him. If it were too, if it were too pretty... It, would it wouldn't not work. work. Quentin Blake yes. is the illustrator. Well, I think that that just about wraps it up, you guys. So I think we're at time, and y'all did a great job. So thank you so much for coming in. So I'll be taking about... all of these books with me. And, and you can read them. them. Yes. You can come to the library and take I'm... them out. You could, yes. <laughs> um, go to your local library. Support your local librarians. Love them. Absolutely. I did notice that the Amarillo Public Library does also carry a few of his adult books. Ooh. I will definitely be be looking at that. And that is why we don't categorize by author. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Uh, Can you imagine? Nope. Thank you for listening, book lovers. And remember to click subscribe wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Special thanks goes to the Mag 7 for providing us with music, Colin Lutz, and Stevie Brashears for designing us such a cool logo. See you next time.